Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, my guest is Marielle Fenstra, a person you might have encountered on social media as the energy feminist. Marielle has been working on gender and energy policies since 2000. She's currently a PhD researcher at the University 20 in the Netherlands and will defend her PhD thesis, Gender Just Energy Policy, Engendering the Energy Transition in Europe, this summer. Marielle, welcome to Energetic and congratulations on your PhD. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Marine, and uh, also thank you very much for this opportunity to uh, share my story and uh, congratulations on this podcast series. It's very interesting. Thank you so much. Maya, as I just said, we can find you on social media under the nickname Energy Feminist. You have also just finished a PhD on inclusivity and gender in EU energy policies. Can you tell us more about your background, your vision and how you became the Energy Feminist? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a while that I've engaged with gender and energy. I have a background in political science and public administration. And when I did my master uh, thesis, I did an internship with UNIFEM, which used to be UN Women or the UN organization that was involved with women and gender uh, issues. Well, I started that with a very strong idea that women need more empowerment, especially in the global south. With bits of a naive vision that we in the West and especially in, in Europe were in a privileged position in which there was a lot of gender equality. One of my supervisors was at that time Joy Clancy, who has been working on gender and energy issues for a long, long time. And she engaged me with this topic of the gender and energy nexus. And so that interested me that much that I conducted my master thesis work on energy policy in South Africa and Uganda, which... Both countries at that time, we're talking about 2000-2002, were heavily involved in a transition socially and economically and democratically. The South African government in the aftermath of uh, the apartheid, well, kind of aimed at inclusive policies in all sectors and at all levels. So energy policy was one of them. So they had a very strong internal driver. Where... On the contrary, Uganda had a very more external impact and influence from donor organizations that funded and their, their policy transitions. And one of their main aims as donor organizations was to achieve more gender equality. So hence the energy policy document or the energy policy white paper at that time written had to have a very strong gender component. And what I realized is when analyzing energy policy that seems such a far away from social policies like health policies or educational policies or even equality or empowerment policies, 
that even those more strongly technocratic policy areas like energy, if they are able to include a social component, a gender equality component, then that is definitely the key to a more gender equal society. So after my master's thesis, I left academia for for more than 15 years and I returned back to academia a couple of years ago. I was shocked to see how little progress there has been made on the topic of gender and energy policy. There were, of course, good projects and there were good research done on case studies, but a very strong contextual, uh, theoretical deepening of the understanding of gender and energy, uh, and definitely gender and energy policy from a policy perspective, was lacking. And if we want to achieve a sustainable and clean energy access for all people, both in uh, the global south and in the global north, we need to step up. We need to be empowered as researchers and as policy advisors and as decision makers to want to make that difference for all people involved. So I wouldn't say that I'm feeling myself being such a strong activist, but I do believe we need to have stronger voices uh, and more advocacy in different roles in different sectors, uh, whether it's academia or the political worlds or the policy area to step up for the marginalized groups in energy. So, yeah, the energy feminist is is maybe a bit uh, a strong name, but at least it sparks interest, it sparks discussion, and it's hopefully it opens up uh, and this calls uh, change in which gender will get more attention, both in policymaking and in research. Well, that's really interesting because you are actually trying to bridge the gap between policy and research. And I'm thinking also about the two studies that you published for the European Parliament, in which which were actually the first publications in the EU on gender and energy policy. But you also worked in the situation in, in Uganda and South Africa. So you are very involved in different communities, linking research and practice. So how do you plan to use your research from your PhD or other projects to finally make an impact? in the real world? Yes, thank you for that question, because for me, it's a very natural process. Being always interested in in politics and always being involved in policy making and policy influencing, even when I was at high school, uh, for me, it comes quite naturally to study and find data and translate that into tangible policies to make a change. And by having different roles in my career, it also creates legitimacy. So since I've been working as a policy advisor for more than 15 years in municipalities, I know the struggles and the obstacles and the barriers that comes with implementing policy and by creating a political agenda. So with that experiences, I can implement that in my policy recommendations and policy analysis for my research area. But I also realized that, especially in Uganda and South Africa and Rwanda, is also a very strong example in that sense, that there is a change in momentum where 
well, let's say 20 years ago, we were still very much struggling and advocating for more women empowerment and energy policy for more for stronger gender mainstreaming in the energy policy agenda. Nowadays, we do see that there is growing attention also in Europe for more social inclusion and energy policy. But then the next question comes to mind is not why we want to do it, but how are we going to do it? And that is the change also in my academic work. So for example, in my master thesis, the title of my master thesis was Towards a Gender-Aware Energy Policy. So really focusing on the enabling framework, enabling conditions that need to be taken into consideration before you could create an energy policy. Where in my PhD work, I'm analyzing current existing energy transition policies, but then from from Europe, and try to identify what are the elements, what are the policy choices already made in energy transition policy that could contribute to a more gender-just or more social inclusive energy policy implementation. That that is still lacking is definitely something that I identified, but then it becomes too negative. And that doesn't create a change uh, that only creates, well, that people starting to defend themselves or decision makers are starting to defend themselves. No, I, on, on the contrary, I want to use my, my experience in policy making to come up with possible alternatives or additional policy choices that could contribute to a more gender-just energy policy. Yeah, one of the comments that comes very often when you start digging into the energy slash gender nexus is the gender blindness of policies. Can you explain a little bit what is gender blindness and why it is an enormous problem for EU policymaking or for policymaking in general? Yes, I mean, we're talking about gender blindness by especially energy policymakers because there is no gender component, there is no intersectional component and there is no social inclusion component in the existing policies. What we mean with that is that there is this assumption that uh, energy policy is gender neutral and doesn't need to have an inclusive paragraph or doesn't need to take into consideration the different needs and uses of energy consumers because in principle or in the nature of energy like electricity and gas, for example, for heating, there should not be a a gender difference in access and use of that technology. The technology in itself uh, appears to be gender neutral. And from that very technocratic perspective and also from this neoliberal discourse that we currently have in Western Europe of that not everyone is able to pay the energy they use, should or should be able to pay the energy they use. And this market perspective brings this gender component or this social inclusion component under the radar of policymakers. And that is partly caused by the fact that there is hardly gender disaggregated data on energy use, on energy needs, on energy access of the end users. So in my 
understanding of the energy transition, we're talking about a triple transition. We're not only talking about a transition from a supply-oriented policy to a demand-driven policy. So we're looking at energy security, for example, and safety of energy sources to this more demand-driven energy policy that we see in decarbonization. We're also talking about this technological change and shift from fossil fuels to renewables. And we're talking about a governance shift from a regulatory government to a more facilitating and stimulating government that needs to create policies and implement policies in this triple helix or quadruple helix uh, collaboration with different stakeholders like energy communities, energy corporations, and the end users. And this combination of these three dimensions of energy transitions is contributing to the complexity of the energy transition, why, in my opinion, the energy transition is appearing such a slow process. But it also emphasizes that we need a holistic approach of energy transition, and especially from a policy perspective. And to deepen the understanding and to contribute to this holistic approach, we need to take a holistic approach into the components of energy policy. So not only looking at the technocratic dimension or the decarbonization dimension, but also definitely looking at at use and behavior of the energy users and the needs of the energy users. But we also need to take a holistic approach into who is the energy user, who are the different actors involved in the whole energy system and in the energy chain. And to understand that if we're talking about the decision maker or the energy producer or the energy consumer, that is not one person. I mean, now we bring in our genders, we bring in our social background, we're bringing in our educational backgrounds, our age. So taking an intersectional approach towards the actors in the energy system reveals how the different actors in the energy system have different motives, different knowledge, different understanding, and different resources to act upon and make a change. What's very interesting as well is the fact that only a few women are also at uh, sitting at the boards of energy companies or are actually decision makers in the energy transition process. So what is still missing, let's say, to make the transition truly fair, equitable, engage as many people as possible, as many People with different backgrounds, different households, different... I know that you hate the term household, so I would like <laughs> you to develop on that, maybe. <laughs> so what is missing, in your opinion, to make the energy transition truly fair and equitable? And I want you to ask this question as you held so many different roles and positions with municipalities, as a consultant, also in academia. So you have a very comprehensive understanding of the energy transition and its stakeholders. So it's quite rare to, to see this such a good perception of the situation. Yes, indeed. I think that's the benefit of coming to a certain age and also my nature of being always interested in, in the different perspectives of, uh, well, policy making and, and uh, different uh, roles indeed. Well, let's start with this, my argument or my struggles with the concept of household. We often, still often take the household as an entity, as a homogeneous entity as well, within research and within policy making. 
But if we really look at, especially at the European level, how is a, a household composed and what is considered to be a household, we see a very different perspective and we see a whole bunch of different mix of different compositions of households that still in, in, in Western Europe, we have a huge percentage of single person households, no one person living alone. But if we dissect even that form of households, no, the one person living alone, uh, and we dissect it in gender and age, we see a huge difference. For example, many elderly women in Europe are living alone. So also, if we look at, at, at families and family households, with the divorce rate and the rate of separations in Western Europe, we see a very fluid household composition. So if I look, for example, at my personal situation, I'm divorced for many years already, and I have two teenage sons. So part of the week, they're living with me, not using my heating, showering, cooking more food, especially for teenage boys. And the other half of the week, they're with their dads at their dad's place. They have their gaming computers. And I can tell you, those online games are very energy, taking uh, uh, a lot of energy. And, uh, so even there, even in my own little household, we see a huge fluidity. And look at, at multi-generational households and, uh, their, and, and, and caregiving responsibilities for elderly, for example. So if, if you look at households and even in your own environment, even in your own family, in your own circle of friends, you see this huge variety of households, which means that each household have a different use of energy, a different energy consumption patterns. I know it might be difficult to dissect households uh, from a policy perspective, but it has to be done in order to uh, better understand the energy needs and also to reflect that within energy policies, both in the corporate world as well as in the governmental world. And then if we move towards the boardrooms and who is working in the energy sector, well, unfortunately, I would say, we still see a very, also there, a very homogeneous group of people, mostly men, that are working in these, these kind of companies. And especially if you look at the boardroom, sometimes when I give a presentation within energy companies, they're getting a bit nervous. Oh, gosh, no, there's this, this energy feminist talking in our, giving a presentation. So they start counting how many men and women they are working in their, their company. And sometimes they present this very uh, beautiful picture of, well, we almost have gender parity. But then if I ask the more uncomfortable question, where are these women working and what is their position? What is their salary? Then it comes quite uncomfortable. It seems like they all of a sudden they start counting all the cleaning ladies to achieve gender parity. And in the boardrooms, it's very homogeneous group of white, middle-aged, well-educated men. So if you are creating policies, if you're making decisions that impact such a heterogeneous bag of M&M colored group of, of clients and consumers, you, we're asking a lot of empathy from the boardroom members to position themselves in the position of the energy users that might not be able to afford the energy, for example, or that have this fluidity of energy use because of the fluidity of their households. So there is this friction between 
who is the decision maker and who is the end user. And to overcome this friction, we still have a very long way to go. And you are here to ask them the questions that uh, that scratches. And uh, that's why I love that you are back into the consultancy world after being a PhD researcher for, for many years. So I think it's so interesting that you have decided to take over the academia path after having worked for so many years in the public and private sectors. And now you also plan to keep maybe a little too on in the academia, but get back to helping decision makers and companies better acknowledge those gender issues and perspectives. So can you tell me more about your upcoming projects? I've heard that you've been thinking about uh, setting up a board game. Yes, indeed. Well, I was wrapping up my PhD thesis. The questions of what will be the next step come quite naturally. And especially in my case, I really wanted to ask myself or challenge myself, how can I make impact? How can I use all the different skills and all the different experiences I've gathered over the years in a new position? And luckily, I found that position uh, as a consultant. What will be my, my main task is to build partner consortia with universities with uh, companies, with uh, governmental agencies. So really the triple helix organizations uh, to promote gender uh, mainstreaming, gender equality and social inclusion uh, within the energy field, but also in other sectors. Uh, so I'm really trying how to, how can we incorporate a more gender just policy? And what I realized and understood in my work, in my research, is this notion that there is currently the momentum and more awareness also through the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movements, that this component of social justice is, well, people are more and more aware of social justice that needs to be incorporated in their the work. But the next question is then how and what does it entails and what does it mean and what are the different components And within my PhD work, I try to develop this theoretical and conceptual framework to deepen the understanding of the gender and energy uh, nexus and realize that it has so many different perspectives. And they developed a matrix on gender and energy justice. But when developing this matrix and, and identifying indicators and elements of the matrix, I realize it's like a system approach. It's like like an, uh, uh, different actors have different motivations and different knowledge and different resources. So we could make it very tangible and, and for decision makers in boardrooms, whether they are in corporate world or in, in, in the governmental uh, or in the, in the government, to understand the impacts of their policy choices for the different actors and what are more tangible policy choices to create a more gender-just energy policy. So at the moment, yes, indeed, I'm, I'm developing this uh, boardroom game that we could play with, indeed, boardrooms, <laughs> and with boards of companies, but also with group of decision makers. I, I would love to, to even 
develop it further so that you could use it in, in multi-stakeholder participation workshops to deepen the understanding of each other's position, each other's motivations to create a more gender-just energy policy and what would be the impact of different choices and to come with not only to deepen the understanding, but also to create more empathy for different positions of the different actors involved. Have you tried this uh, board uh, room game with your sons? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Of course, it's a bit funny because they really like these shooting games or racing games. And, and no, I sometimes try to play with them and, and, and I say sorry every time I shoot someone. So I don't, I'm not so good. I close my eyes when it's racing. But of course, no, gaming has a very strong system. You're having different levels. You have different resources or treasure. These components is, of course, part of a serious game as well. And while I was developing the boardroom game, we were approached, uh, or me and my team were approached by uh, UNESCO, who has a specific program for um, creating more sustainability or promoting sustainable development goals within schools. And they have this UNESCO schools, etc. So they asked us whether whether we would be interested to develop also a game to play at schools and especially at high school level. And that's great more insight on gender and energy and uh, energy poverty, etc. And um, yes, that's my next step. <laughs> that's my next, I always need to have a next project. So indeed, I think it would be wonderful to create such a game. I know there are different games available for the SDGs that are played at uh, high school level and vocational training schools, for example. And I think it's important, but we also need to understand that it's a different target group and it creates, no, it needs a different language and um, different elements of the game indeed. And what I understand as well is from this kind of game is, or from your work is that you, you look at like inclusivity from the gender perspective, but inclusivity is way broader. It touches upon age, uh, touches upon uh, ability, race, uh, class, and multiple settlement status, for instance, and income, etc. So it touches upon so many uh, different aspects. And that's why a very transsectional uh, vision is so important and intersectional vision is so important and and needs to take so many factors and actors into into consideration so how do you make sure that when you work inclusivity is not only limited to gender but also to to all those other aspects that i just mentioned yes indeed and it's I'm really aware of it, but even uh, in my work, I sometimes feel like, oh, I'm only talking about women, but we're also, when, while gender is about men and women, and social inclusion is about uh, taking a very intersectional approach, and we shouldn't acknowledge that not all men are the same, not all women are the same. But to start with this more binary distinction between men and women makes it, in my opinion, more tangible to understand the inequalities and injustices. And that's the first step that, in my opinion, not take 
the energy user or the consumer as one entity just already realize that there's a difference between men and women and that there's a difference between ages. And that's not, so we, we're, it's like an onion. You have different layers. You start with, with one layer and then the next layer and then the next layer. Also, my criticism to, towards taking a, well, a social inclusion approach is that it's, I believe that it sometimes dilutes the gender differences too much. And I mean, that's also what I tried in my thesis to understand the different engendering approaches. Uh, there's not one gender approach that we, um, I try to distill from, uh, f- through a historic perspective, the different approaches, like in the 70s, in the 1970s, we had this very strong women empowerment feminist approaches. And then we moved on with the Millennium Development Goals in the aftermath of the Beijing Conference uh, on, on Women towards the more gender mainstreaming approaches, you know, the gender in development, gender mainstreaming approaches, transformative approaches in the 1990s. And in this uh, century, starting from 2000, but uh, with in the aftermath of the Sustainable Development Goals, we have this very strong social inclusion policy discourse and growing towards current the current age of social justice. And even though we see in history in policy discourses the different approaches, if you look at if you talk with with people, uh, researchers and policymakers on what are their motivations and what is their leading approach from a social inclusion or gender perspective. We see all these different approaches are still emerging at the same time and they're they're mutually reinforcing. And so you could even have in a boardroom people having all different approaches. One might be really focusing on this women-only approach and still take a very strong women empowerment approach. The other one might be a bit more gender-sensitive instead of a very social justice or gender justice approach. So we have all these different approaches within the engendering energy policy approaches. And to understand that people, actors within the energy system take a different perspective and have different motivations towards including gender in policy, hopefully creates a dialogue on what do you find important in making an energy transition more social just or more equal. And there is no hierarchy between the different approaches. I often see it more as spectrum of which now coming from gender blinds to gender neutral to now women only approaches towards gender sensitive, gender aware, gender mainstreaming, gender transformative towards social inclusion, social justice. And then you might end up, if you go too far with social inclusion, it might dilute the differences between the different groups. And you could end up, again, being in a gender-neutral place where different groups are starting to empower themselves, raising their voices, and there you go back into the empowerment uh, stream. So, well, gender is a dynamic concept. Transitions are a dynamic concept. So... We will have these waves in time, in policy discourses, and in, well, the motivations of the actors involved as well. 
It's a very nice way of wrapping things up uh, that gender and transitions are dynamic concepts that will evolve throughout uh, the time and uh, that the different actors will have to take into consideration in order to include and also respect better the the population, the citizens, the persons that are using energy or using any service in particular. So thank you so much, Marielle. I wanted to ask you one final question, but um, let me know if you are not comfortable with that. Do you think you have succeeded in educating your boys as energy feminists as well? <laughs> oh, that's a very tough question indeed. I always say I'm a feminist only in working hours. <laughs> so I yeah, I have to be really honest to say that uh, yes, uh, no, it, we still have uh, quite traditional roles within our own little family. But my youngest one, we have this game that is called dilemmas. So no, we ask each other questions like what would you do if you win two million and then my youngest one answered oh i'm going to buy a tesla car for my dad and i'm going to uh, give my mom the uh, another million to give all the women and girls in african light so in that sense no, i guess <laughs> they they kind of understand what i'm working on what i'm trying to achieve And it contributes in giving more awareness to hopefully the next generation. But I give them the freedom to develop their own ideas and their own aims in life. And uh, let's see what they will contribute to. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, it's nice to see that it's actually a, a process and that everybody has to make their own path in order to understand what uh, the dynamics that are at stake and the empowerment issues that are at stake as well. So thank you so so much, Marielle. It's been a fascinating conversation. Please go ahead on social media and look for The Energy Feminist and you will see what Marielle has been working about, is working on as well. So thank you so much, Marielle. Thank you very much, Maureen. And lovely to have this conversation uh, with you. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.